Welcome to the Change Book Radio Show with your host, work-life fit expert, Deb Crow. Join Deb every week as she interviews the co-authors from all over the globe. They'll share their insights into self-empowerment with their personal stories and real-life experiences that will help your own personal development and touch every area of your life. Join Deb every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, good evening, everyone from sunny Canada. We are now in daylight savings time, which is such a treat for us. So to be looking out the window at seven o'clock at night and still see daylight is such a treat. And speaking of treats, I have a powerful, powerful co-author from the change book number four on the show tonight. And it just continues to amaze me that we're now on book number 14. We have co-authors from over 25 countries that span the globe. And what an honor and privilege it is for me to sit here with my blue mic talking to you through technology and interview the most amazing people who are making change and are innovative and creative and, and they speak to all walks of life. And tonight, it is such an honor for me to have Anita Brooks. Let me tell you about Anita. She is an international speaker. She is a business and life coach. She's a common trauma expert, which we're really going to delve into. She is an award-winning author. And she continually reminds audiences on the stage and from the page. One of her favorite quotes is, it's never too late for a fresh start with fresh faith. So please help me welcome Anita to the Change Book Radio Show. Hi, Deb. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. It's, I always love hearing your voice because I'm sure I have an accent to you, but I can always hear your accent. And I'm just so excited to, to dive into your chapter from book number four and, and talk about all the things that you've done and that you're doing and what you've got coming up on the horizon. So let's dive right in, shall we? That sounds perfect. So the first question that I always like to ask is, what interested you the most to join the global community in the Change Book series after you spoke with Jim Britt and Jim Lutz? Oh, that is a great question, Deb. You know, I think the thing that inspired me the most about this project was the opportunity to reach more people, to encourage more people on a broader basis, but also to, to creatively link with so many others. And as you just said a few minutes ago, I mean, we have the privilege of standing arm in arm with people all across the globe now. We do, and I mean, I don't know if our paths would have crossed if we both didn't make the decision to write a chapter, but I think our words and our submission of a chapter is so much more than that because we are now linked with so many amazing professionals around the globe, and it just excites me, and I just, I love, you know, one day I'm speaking to someone in Australia and the next day I'm speaking to someone in England and then I find out there's someone an hour away from me and I just, I love the initiative, but I, 
I love that we all have one common goal in this beautiful book series, this personal development series, is that we all love clear communication. And I, I know that that is one of your passions. So I want to start with that. And I don't want you to think about this question. I just want you to tell me what comes to your mind first. How would you describe okay. Anita Brooks in one word? Inspiring. And I, after I read, I reread your chapter, I, I would agree with you. And if you'll allow me the privilege, I've, I've, <laughs> I've graciously pink highlighted a lot of your chapter because there was so many words. And I know that as a writer, we both love wordsmithing and we love words, but I would like to read the first chapter, uh, the first paragraph, pardon, in your chapter. And then I want to expand on that because I think what you've done is you've beautifully threaded together the power of a name change and, and how you went through in your self-reflection. So I'm just going to read this for the listeners. So this is from Anita's chapter in book number four, and it's called The Power of a Name Change, and it starts on page 158, and this is the opening paragraph. By September 23rd, 2010, I'd endured a wave of tsunami-like tragedies. Sometimes I felt like I couldn't catch my breath, but when you survive enough adversity and a new wave hits, the benefit of past experience guides you past the emotional debris and keeps the undertow from pulling you under. And when I, when I reread this to prepare for our interview, what I realized was you've been gifted with a writing style that just emotionally grabs the reader. And that's how I feel when I, when I read your work. So my question is, where is the place that Anita went to to write this chapter? And how did you come out of your tsunami-like tragedies? Mm, you're asking great questions tonight, Deb. <laughs> oh, where I went, um, when I, well, and let me just say this. I, I, going back to what you asked earlier about why, I wanted to join the change. I just want to also add that I could not have foreseen how much benefit that I've gained from doing this. I'm so glad that I've been able to be a part of this because I've seen the impact that these books have had on other people and have seen people truly make changes in their lives for the better. And part of the reason that that is so important to me is because I I have been through some difficulties, you know, the types of tragedies that drive you to your knees and wonder if you're going to survive. So when I was writing this, I was thinking about myself while I was in that place where the tsunami was washing over me and asking myself, what would have encouraged me? What would have lifted me up? And what was true about my coming through that, those experiences? And so that's what I wrote from. And for me, the tsunami was just the perfect metaphor for what I had experienced. And I know that there are a lot of people in the world who know what I'm talking about, where you just keep getting knocked back down 
You feel like you can't get back up before another wave comes. But what I also know, having come through that and having enough time behind me, I realize that it strengthens you. And so the next time a wave comes, and I've had other waves come since, you are more prepared. Uh, You're wiser. You're stronger. And, you know, you also um, have enough courage to believe in yourself in ways that you didn't when you were weaker before. So even when you asked me how I would describe myself in one word, frankly, there was a time I would have never been able to have said that about myself. But because of the adversities that I faced, I can, I have the strength, and I know that I am a woman who can stand up under the pressure. But I'm also a woman who cares about other people, and I want to help them stand up as well. And I, and I would concur with that. And I love that you talk about being a strong woman. And, and the words that come to my mind as I'm listening to you answer kind of your strategies that you used was, I almost think that we develop an, intuit, an intuitive empathy. And the reason I say that to you is I, I look at myself when I go to hospice, because you know I volunteer at hospice and I, I just, it's my feel good and I just love being there. And I think because yeah. I have endured so much loss in my life and lost many of my family to cancer, I, I'm not only relatable, but I don't have the emotional piece because I think I exude the strength to have that intuitive empathy. And I, I felt that you had that when I read your chapter. And I feel like that when I, when I read any of, of the writings or when we're talking or you're approaching something and we're bouncing off ideas. And do you think that that strength helps develop that intuitive empathy? It does. One of the great gifts that I think we can receive from going through adversity is the gift of compassion. You know, it's not that you don't feel compassion for people prior to having gone through a difficult time, but when you have experienced a difficulty, that gives you, I call it experiential empathy because it gives you a depth of knowledge that you just did not have prior to experiencing it. And it's a a caring at a level that maybe you wish you had before, but you just can't conjure that up. But when you go through a hard time and then you see someone else that's going through a hard time, you know, your heart bleeds for them and you want to help them. And it comes from an authentic and genuine caring place. And it changes you in a beautiful way. So, you know, I know, Deb, um, from the things that you and I have talked about before, you would probably agree with me. I don't think that I would go back and change anything that's happened. Would you? I, I think our life is like a quilt. It's a, it's a tapestry of life experiences. And whatever cognitive emotion that brings to you, whether it's happy, sad, joy, depression, whatever one that you can label it to, I don't think I'd be who I am today. I don't think you would be who you are. And I think out of every, let's call it a tsunami-like tragedy, because I I love how you've coined that phrase, something always good comes out of something that's negative in our life. And I think it's an approach and a mindset. I always feel when something's not going right, it's kind of uh, a hit 
a hit on our head from up above to say there's a great door coming around the corner. You just can't see it yet. And I think it's having that, that ability or that perspective to just feel the emotion and to lean into it. And like you talk about in your chapter, not to fall into the fear. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And I, I really want to talk about that because I, I'm anxious to get your book and I want to get your book and I, I'd like to talk about it. And I know that you have written many books, but the one that I really want to talk about is getting through what you can't get over. I, I was overwhelmed and not surprised at the five-star reviews that, you've received, that you have received on Amazon.com and just reading how people have said, I would have never picked up this type of book and I didn't realize I needed this book and this book spoke to me and how you and people have said, I never read this type of book, but she was speaking to me. How does that make you feel is part one of my question. And part two is, where were you spiritually, emotionally, and were you in the middle of the tsunami when you were writing this book? Oh, great questions. Um, so remind me, what was the first question again? Was it how, that, how did I feel? Where were you spiritually and emotionally when you started to write that book? Well, one, I had come through um, a very deep tsunami um, period of my life. And so I had grieved enough and I had learned enough that I was stronger. So I was emotionally equipped to write it. When I was in the midst of the tsunami, I don't think I could have accomplished that feat. But however, spiritually where I was, you know, I had been through things that frankly, in my faith, I know that only God could have brought me through. There were times when, you know, I am a strong woman, but my human strength just was not enough. And there were times when I had to talk myself through, you know, things as well. You know, as you know from my chapter in the change book, you know, I talk about the labels that we use um, for ourselves. Well, I had to learn to relabel myself a lot while I was going through the tsunami, but I also learned some really practical things that helped me get through difficult moments because so many times people will tell you, well, just take things one day at a time. Well, I've been through things that, in all honesty, one day was overwhelming. So I needed things to help me get through one moment at a time. And it was my heart to help other people who might be in that place that helped me to write that book. But what was interesting is um, just as I was finishing the book, I actually entered another uh, tsunami period of my life. So I had those back-to-back. And (laughs) it's kind of funny, but um, during the the second uh, strong waves, I literally read my own book sometimes to help me get through that. And um, it was amazing because sometimes when I read some of those words, I have to admit, it felt surreal because it almost felt like someone else had written them, had penned them for me. That's a very, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm in awe just listening to your answer. I, I, I love that you said there's no timelines and whether you're 
experiencing deep grief like you talk about, it's probably the biggest and most repetitive script that I use at hospice. When someone passes away or someone is very ill and that person left behind chooses to move on, you hear, well, it's only been six months or it's only been three years. There's no time lineage to grief. There's no timeline for like you're talking about, sometimes it's moment by moment, let alone day by day, like you said. Absolutely. You know, in the in getting through it, you can't get over, I share the seven stages of grief. And, and I talk about grief on different levels as well, because we don't just grieve when we lose a loved one to death. You know, we can lose things such as um, going through a financial crisis. Uh, if we've been... Uh, you know, abused, especially in our childhood, that can leave us with post-traumatic stress disorder. Many people don't realize that post-traumatic stress is not a military problem. 80% of adult people will experience PTSD at some point in their life. So, you know, we need those tools and resources to help us get through those things. And frankly, you know, if someone has lost their home, let's say, you know, that's not something they're going to get over. They'll get through that, but they're not going to get over it. And that's, you know, that book was actually born one day when um, someone was just sharing their heart with me. They were, were going through a tough time. And I heard myself say to them, you know, I've learned that there are some things in life that we can get through but we'll never get over. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, the thought came to me, you know, that is a book that would help a lot of people. And so that's why I wrote that book. It sounds like it was a serendipitous moment. I, I think that's an accurate description, Deb. <laughs> and I, I just want to touch on that I think, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, because, you know, my background's medical case management, and a lot of times, it was the family members who weren't even in the car accident or in the workplace accident with their loved one who sustained horrific catastrophic injury. They had the post-traumatic stress disorder because they weren't always given compensatory strategies to help them experience the loss of their loved one. And, and a simple example would be their loved one may have sustained a traumatic brain injury So in the physical body, their loved one was that same person, but on every other level, behaviorally, cognitively, emotionally, it wasn't the same person. And just their suffering and their loss and just how to deal with that injury. And I feel sometimes that that's kind of a loophole in the system to help those who are supporting the ones that are hurt or going through a really difficult time. So I think that's a really good point that you brought up on PTSD. I'd like to circle back for a minute on the labels in your chapter because I love them. And <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to an emotional place because that's what I do on this show. And okay. I want to, I want to know how Anita felt at 46 years old when you did find out that your dad wasn't your biological dad, how, how did that make you feel? Because you, you come right out of the gate writing about that in your chapter. And 
you talk about your world immediately spinning out of control and talking about the whole truth of your life coming into question. So just share with the listeners, because I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this and maybe, you know, to hear your story, they may not have been able to to speak to someone about a similar scenario. So I would love for you to share with us, you know, your heart and your, your mind and your soul at that time when you found that out. Yeah, well, as I said, it, it it is a shock when you find that out. You know, I think when you're maybe in your teens or 20s, it's a, it would be a shock. I've spoken to many in those age ranges uh, who have discovered this kind of information, but not at 46. You know, I mean, they're shocked then, but it's not like that. reaching that point in life where you think that your identity is solid. You know, you, you've went through a lot of the emotional immaturity and, and moved past that. And so, you know, you're solid in your life and your relationships. And suddenly, one of the most core pieces of who you are is stripped away in an instant with one piece of information. For me, with one DNA test. Um, you know, we don't have time to go into the whole story, but it's really dramatic how that occurred for me. And what I find now, because, as you know, I speak internationally, and this is one of the uh, messages that a lot of people want to hear from me, how many people come up to me afterwards and they have their own identity stories? There are a lot of people who don't know who their fathers are and some who don't know who their mothers are. And for me what happened was I went into the tailspin of, well, who am I? And the other part of this was this was very early in my writing career. And so I began to question, was I even capable of doing this thing and fulfilling this dream that I had, that I had finally overcome some other things to take steps toward achieving? Would I be able to see that through? You know, here I was, an illegitimate child and... and um you know, I, we were talking about grief. You know, grief is messy. I had to grieve through this thing, and I went through all the stages of grief. And one of the things about that is when we mourn, yes, we can identify those very seven clear steps of grief, but in the messiness of grief, you don't just follow those steps in precision. You know, you may hit one, and you may be camped out there for a while, or you, you may be hopped through three or four very quickly, but then you go back to the first one again. You know, there's no, like, pattern established that we can say, well, this is what grief will look like. And frankly, we can't say what grief should look like. It's different for different people. Um, how long it lasts, you know, changes from person to person. But the change for me, and I love that, you know, we're on the change radio show for me to say this, but the change for me came when I realized that I was knitted in my mother's womb, that I am not an accident, and that I was created on purpose, with purpose, in order to fulfill a purpose. And when my mindset changed to that, everything in my life changed with it. It didn't mean that I instantly you know, worked through the grieving process. I still had to, to go through that. I had to face that pain. I had to face my fears, but face them I did. 
even to the point that not only did I publish one book after that, but I published multiple books. And actually one of the books I'm working on right now is on our greater purpose, our abundant purpose, because that was one of the lessons that I came away with. And I realized that my, my conception does not define me. You know, my identity is something that I can help determine. And what I accomplish is based on my actions, not on things that are beyond my control. And when I began to speak to myself in that kind of language, and I stopped allowing myself to fall prey to the lies that my emotions were telling me, that's when I began to see success, and that's when I began to feel true healing at the core of my soul. Well said. And everything that you've just eloquently spoke of is the labels that you threaded throughout your book. And I like the way you worded them. Call me courageous. Call me worthy. Call me talented. Call me teachable. Call me empowered. Call me targeted. Call me doer. Call me grateful. And you just chose to change your inner dialogue and have affirmations of who you are. And I think that's a really important message. It's kind of like the power of intent. People say, well, I don't really know if I can have that. You don't have to have it right now. But if you think about it and put that intent out there and and you see it and you feel it, and there's an authenticity of what I like to call consistent emotion and repetitive thought that if you think it and you feel it, it's going to come. And as you would say, and I've heard you say this numerous times and I've, and I've seen it in your writing, if you take life's battles and transform them into victories, instead of having a repetitive pattern of behavior and being a victim, turn it into a victory. And, and like you say, exercise faith in the face of your fears. And, and I think that you've done that so beautifully. I think you're a wonderful role model for a lot of people, Anita. And I think if people read not only your chapter in the change book, but just that powerful title, getting through what you can't get over. So the title alone says to me, you're going to get through it but you're not going to forget about it. It'll always be there, but it's not going to consume who you are or what you're going to do going forward is I think the easiest way to say it in layman's terms. I think so. And, and, you know, one of the other things that I've learned through all of this, Deb, including, you know, the writing, I mean, as you know, it's a scary thing to put your words out there for the whole world to see, because when you, write those words down, what you're in essence doing is spilling the contents of your heart onto the page. But you take courage, and take is a verb. It means action. And sometimes I don't feel courageous, but that's actually when I need courage the most. If I didn't feel afraid, I wouldn't need to be brave. And sometimes I think all of us are prone to believing what we feel when instead what we should do is be decisive to take action and then the feelings will follow. 
That's what faith is. Faith is stepping out and acting before you feel it. And I think a lot of people get it backwards. They think, oh, I have to feel it before I can take a step. And I found the reverse is true. Well, and I've always thought, I I never considered myself to be a writer, but I started. And I think once you start putting pen to paper, because I think there's a big difference, and I want you to talk about this. Typing is one way of writing, but I find that the emotion and my true belief comes through when I'm holding that pen to paper. And I want you to talk about that. And, And do you use both modalities to write? And what's your opinion on that? I do, and and actually I use three modalities to write. So I do type, I do use pen to paper, but I also use audio. You know, especially with my heavy travel schedule, um, with as much as I speak anymore, oftentimes I transcribe my thoughts by recording them. And it's interesting how each one of those gives me a different angle toward creativity none of them are exactly the same but when I take all three approaches and you know I've used them at different times but then when I I come to the polishing point of the book and I weave those together what I find is it enhances the work and it enriches the message so um, I'm a firm believer that we need to shake our brain up a little bit so to speak Um, if we just keep doing the same old thing all the time, then I think our brains get a little bit lazy. But if we do things a bit differently, then that gets those creative juices flowing. Um, And then I'll say this too, for any creative endeavor, um, the power of brainstorming to me is just phenomenal. It's such a simplistic thing. But so many times, People don't do something because they think it has to be perfect out of the box. If anyone saw what I wrote the first time around, I would be so embarrassed. Um, In the professional writing world, we call it vomiting on the page. (laughs) But it's the getting it out that you're able to take that core message and then you start cleaning it up. And then you start polishing it. And then it becomes this beautiful, shiny object that the world can see and that can help other people. And so I would just encourage anyone who wants to do anything, if they're afraid to take a step, if they're afraid to take courage and take action, just brainstorm it out. You know, just take a piece of paper. Don't limit yourself. Don't allow yourself to think that anything is too stupid, too foolish, um, that it's not feasible. Just begin to write things on the page. What are your dreams? What are your desires? You know, if nothing held you back, what would you do? And just begin to write it down. Because when we put things in black and white, we tell our subconscious mind that we are serious. And it's interesting how our subconscious will then drive us to begin to do things that help make that dream become a reality. Well, and you know, when I love when we talk about the brain because it's, it's near and dear to my heart. And 
when you do those change up of modalities that you're speaking of, you actually do create new neural pathways. And what happens is it it allows for an on-ramp of a wave of creativity. And I'm chuckling as I'm listening to you because this morning, as I was preparing for my interview, I was thinking, what one word would, would really describe Anita? If I had to describe Anita to somebody. And there's this awesome acronym that they use in the IT world, and it's called WYSIWYG. And what it means is what you see is what you get. And I remember learning that like back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was teaching DOS, which was the huge operating system before Windows kind of took over the world. And I thought, Anita is what you see is what you get. And, and it's funny because it's, it's, it's an acronym that developers and programmers use. And what it does is it allows them to edit or program but still allow them to have a look at what the end result's going to look like in their software program or document. And I just thought it was such a nice alignment to what you just said. Just start, just get it out there and you can massage it and word with it. The bottom line is being out that subconscious of your thoughts, whether it's goal or a dream or a story. And where I'm going with this is in your chapter, you talk about all the adversity that you've overcome and that you now can list it as a blessing. And, and then you went on to say that the ashes of your pain became the crowns of your beauty. What, do you, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well, I don't think you and I would be talking today had I not been through uh, some of those tragedies. What would I have to offer the world? Uh, what level of compassion should I have to any depth to be able to speak, you know, into someone else's heart? I, I am such a better listener today, Deb. You know, I, I often remind myself, God gave me two ears and one mouth for a reason. I need to listen twice as much as I speak. But I learned that by going through some of the things that I went through. And, you know, frankly, by experiencing people who weren't listening to me when they might ask me a question. They might ask me how I felt about something. But as I would begin to answer, so often they would interrupt me or they would correct me and tell me how I was really feeling (laughs) or what I really was thinking, when in essence they they didn't know. Um, They were making assumptions. And so I learned a valuable lesson from that. I learned what not to do to other people. I learned that when someone is in a state of grief, that one of the worst things that you can do is try to fix them, try to, you know, go into the cheerleader mode. That's not the right time and the place for that. You know, mourn with those who mourn, and then there's a time to rejoice with those who rejoice. All of those are great gifts that I came from going through the most difficult periods of my life, and I am sincerely grateful that I went through those because I think that um, I'm a much more pleasant and authentic person to be around today because of those experiences. Well, and I think it leads to what I like to call our, our own individual equation of authenticity. 
because like you said, you you come off the stage and I'm sure people approach you from the audience because you've just shared your emotion, your stories, you've wore your authenticity, your grief, your mourning, your ability to rejoice on your sleeve. And, and they just want a moment of your time just to connect and feel that relatability. And I think being an international speaker, that's one of the most authentic gifts we can give to our audience. And and I do think it is a gift. Now, I want to shift I, gears because we do have something else hugely in common. So tell the listeners how long you've been married. And then I want, I'm going to quiz you here. I want you okay. to tell the listeners the favorite, the most favorite thing that you love to do with your husband. <laughs> Well, I have been married 34 years, and as I tell my husband often, I don't just love you, I adore you. Uh, we have uh, been through some very difficult things together uh, in our marriage and our relationship, but I'm overjoyed when I look at the relationship that we have because we, we just like being in each other's company. And one of the secrets that I have learned is to try to be the kind of person that I want to be around. And then he does the same thing. And so we just laugh together and um, it, it, it's just pleasant. Um, so now let, let's talk about those sunsets and where we view them. The sun. Okay. What is my say? I had to think for a minute. What I got so caught up, frankly, in my thinking about my husband. I forgot <laughs> what the second part of the question was. That, that, that is very, time. very sweet. <laughs> my, the favorite, our most favorite thing to do is to just be at a lake, especially at sunset, and to dip our toes in the water. And we giggle like little kids. I mean, we just have fun. You know, sometimes you'll see a fish jump out of the water or you'll see, you know, a bird fly across the sky and you watch that golden sun dip into the horizon and there is just nothing in the world like it. Well, you know, you're going to have no argument from me because I'm a boater. Uh, I'm only married 24 years, so I'm, I'm on the heels of catching up to you. But I think that we have an opportunity to speak to some listeners here because it saddens me that the divorce rate is so high. And I love what you just said a minute ago. You love to be around people who are like you. And, and I totally understand what you mean by that. I just think that people give up too easy nowadays because it's easy to give up. And I just, I just want you to talk about that. If, if that was a question you were asked in one of your coaching sessions that you do with couples because I know you do all all different levels of coaching Uh just give us some Anita insight on that as to why you think the rate of divorce is so high as it is today and and what do you think is the strategy that maybe couples can, can look towards to to be married for 34 years and still enjoy each other's company and sunsets at the lake well, as you know, I, I do marriage coaching, and um, it's probably one of my most favorite types of coaching to do. I am an advocate. I'm a cheerleader for couples sticking it out and not giving up too quickly. 
I know what it's like. I, I, I remember a time in our marriage, Deb, when I'll be honest, I packed my clothes in a suitcase because I was going to leave. I left them in my closet. I was just waiting, waiting for the right time. Gratefully, that right time never came. I would have missed out on so many beautiful moments if I would have left our relationship. We didn't have grandchildren at that time. We now have grandchildren. I cannot imagine my grandbabies having to go to different homes for the holidays uh, or not coming to family gatherings because it was too tense or too awkward. We don't have to worry about those things. But I see so many people who do. And a lot of couples, you know, I see them making the decision to leave because, again, of their feelings. You know, well, I don't feel love for them. We know love is another one of those verb words. It's not a warm, fuzzy noun that just happens to you. Love is something you have to take action toward. You have to be decisive and choose love day after day after day, even when you don't feel like it. And I will tell you that, again, it's one of those faith things. When you exercise faith, the feelings will follow. But someone's got to be the hero in the relationship. You know, too many couples that I see, they're both almost arguing back and forth about whose responsibility it is to do more, to do something. Well, you know, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. When we love, we give. And we give not with a motive for getting something. We give just out of a decision in our heart to love that person, to give to them unconditionally. We're living in a culture today where it's too me-focused. And it's so fascinating to me that whenever I stopped being so self-absorbed, when I stopped complaining all of the time about all of my perceived or all of his perceived flaws and faults, all of the things that I perceived that he was doing wrong, and I began to say to myself, okay, what can I do differently? You know, how can I begin to feel love for him again? And so where it started for me was gratitude. And, and you know, Deb, how passionate I am about that word. But when I began every day, I did two things. One, every day I made it a point to write down, and I think it's important to write it down, not just to keep a mental list, but every day write down three things that I was grateful for. But the other thing was to every day write down three things that I saw in my husband that I was grateful for. It changed the lens from which I saw him. So not only is the power of a name change something that works for you intrinsically, but it's also something that works for your spouse externally. Because when you begin to relabel them and redefine them in positive and gracious ways, then you begin to have a level of appreciation and you stop harping, you stop nitpicking, and you do become the kind of person that other people want to be around. I fully agree, and I I, I do agree with you. I think it is a me-focused 
society. And, and one of the favorite phrases that happens quite frequently in my home is, you know, marriage, love, relationships in general are a two-way street. And one person can't be on a one-way street all the time because it goes nowhere. So very, very nice way to frame that. I like that. So I'm, I'm putting this out on the airwaves live that you and I will be together. I don't have the date or time. I, I, need, to, I need to do your goal-setting strategies that are listed so eloquently in the back of your chapter. <laughs> Only Anita would do small, medium, and large-sized goals and, <laughs> and put a timeline to them. I read them and reread them, and I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> It's how I live my life. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I, I believe people come into your life for a reason. And again, I'm just honored to be part of this community. And, and I know we both have that intent out there. And, and it will happen. And I'm, I'm sure when we meet face to face, there's going to be lots of tears. I know there will be for me. But tell us, tears and hugs <laughs> and, and lots of laughter for sure. But tell us what's uh, what's on the the chopping block for you for 2017. I I'm I'm almost ready to put a GPS on you because um, you're crossing states and you take the most beautiful pictures and that's why I'm glad I'm on Facebook with you. I know where you are and what you're doing. But tell us what's uh, what you've got coming up and some of the things that you'd like to create and do you have a book in the works? Well, actually I have three books in the works. Um, I have one book that I'm writing on uh, untangling. It's called untangled a woman's twisted emotions with two other co-authors. Very excited about that project. Uh, I have another book in the works called your abundant purpose. Discovering the real life you were made for, because I think too many people uh, are stuck in a rut or they're just kind of stumbling through life. And, um, you know, I just want to help give a wake-up call because, you know, the passion, the excitement that I feel in my life, I almost missed out on. So I just want to share some of that with others and hopefully help them unearth their own dreams. But the third book I'm working on is very interesting because it was actually born from getting through what you can't get over. And it was one of those things where, you know, you go into something with a certain intent and, you know, you want to help and you kind of envision how that might look, but then something totally unforeseen happens. And for me, it came from a a very uh, short segment in the book where I talked about something called Secondary traumatic stress or compassion fatigue is the common name for that. And it's something that many people who work in emergency services, uh, law enforcement, death investigators, uh, nurses, doctors in uh, emergency trauma wards will deal with. But it's where they're exposed to death and trauma and tragedy on a regular basis. And because of the job that they have to do, they must separate their emotions Um, from the facts of the situation. But they can become so adept at that that after a while, they literally can almost forget how to feel. And it's a a tough situation for these folks. And it affects their families and their home lives adversely and very dramatically. There's a high incidence of divorce and substance abuse and um, suicide among uh, the people who work in these fields And it really saddens me because these are people who are sacrificing for the rest of us. So 
more and more people who worked in those fields were reading Getting Through It You Can't Get Over. And I've actually uh, become a regular guest on uh, other programs that speak to those types of audiences. And um, now I've been asked to become a uh, certified trainer for people who um, work in law enforcement and death investigations. And so one of the things I have upcoming is I'm doing a lot of webinars and uh, face-to-face trainings. I've got some of those next week. But I'm also working on a book uh, written for those people. So what I'm doing is taking um, real-life coroner reports and crime scene reports, and I am painting the picture, the story, around those events. Um, It's a labor of love. It's not always easy to do. But every story that I'm writing and then every bit of practical tips and things that we're giving at the end of the chapters, I just imagine the faces of the women and men who get up every single day and they leave their families to go out and protect and take care of the rest of us. I'm sitting here smiling ear to ear because uh, one of the talks that I, uh, one of the openings that I do when I'm talking to an audience is I talk about why I closed my case management practice. And I talk about being on the edge of the mountain called compassion fatigue and I fell off it. And you're right. I've done a lot of work with first responders here in Canada and they operate to make our lives safe, but at a level of hypervigilance that is so unhealthy and it's like you said, they just cannot come home after their 12-hour shift and decompress. So it just makes me smile. It's just another, it's just another road that you and I weave together, and, and we come at it from different angles. And it just, it just goes to show the collaboration that can continue to grow from being in this book series. And you will be a wonderful person to help them with strategies. And I, I, I'm thrilled to hear that you're working with that population. Thank you. I'm, I'm very my, pom, my pom-poms are shaking. <laughs> yay, yay. Thank you so much. It really is an honor and a privilege to give back um, to these, these men and women. And, you know, and, and especially, you know, here in the United States, um, you know, we've had so much turmoil. Um, you know, those who work in those um, fields have been under such attack. And so it's just added a whole other level of trauma and stress and emotional fatigue to them. So to be able to give something positive in the light of that. And, and you know, Deb, I think that's ultimately what the change is all about. You know, darkness is going to come upon all of us at some point. But to know that there's someone that's lifting and shining a light into that darkness and saying, here's the way, you know, follow me. Because at one point I was in the darkness too. And let's walk out together. Let's go shoulder to shoulder. And then let's go out and expand that light and make a difference for even more people. For me, that's what the change is about. And that's why I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Oh, and and I agree with you. And I, I think that we all, you know, hold a torch down a different path. We've all had different life experiences and we've all handled them different or, or in some cases haven't handled it but we all have that common thread of authenticity. And I think that that's what makes this book series different. It's 
yes, physically it is a book series, but it's a global community of of experts who are bringing their insights, their expertise, they're their showcasing their life experience and, and how they got through it or how they didn't get through it. And, and that's what people want is, is they want that real life experience. They don't want someone to say, well, I think this is what happened. They want to say, you know what, I went through this and, and here's what happened. And I think out of all people that I know with success, there's a trail of failures and that's how they've learned. And that to me is a true entrepreneur who's been down in those trenches and had that grit and tenacity to get back up and just keep going forward. And that's, that's what people want to hear and see is those real life, authentic, relatable stories. So I, I, I think that's a great point that you just made too about the failures. You know, the failures are crucial stepping stones that make up that path that leads us back into the light. And the other thing that I just was thinking when you were saying that, Deb, is that, you know, here we are, book 14. I'm telling you, if people would read this series of books, it's like a master's degree in life. It's a master's degree in maybe helping people avoid some of the pitfalls, you know, maybe avoiding some of those failures, but also so many of the people, I mean, so graciously and generously sharing what works. And I just know that there have been things that I've read from some of our co-authors where I'm like, wow, why didn't I think of that? And things that have saved me time and saved me energy and saved me money. It's just amazing to be a part of that community. Well, I agree with you. And I, again, I, I have so much fun doing this radio show. Like I'm just sitting here with my microphone and my computer and, and who would have thought I'd be chatting with a fellow colleague and co-author in the States. And it's, it's just, it's just awe, awe-inspiring to me, and I want to thank you for spending time with me tonight, and I look forward to when we get together and create something together. The intent is out there. I haven't fully carved it, so like I said, I'm going to have to get my, 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 my pen and my pad and my Anita goals and, and start putting them more <laughs> definitively. And, you know, Deb, too, there could be someone who's listening who just says, wow, those two gals are powerhouses. Let's do something with them. There you go. Well, thank you. And, and you know, keep keep shining your light and doing the work that you do. And I wish you all the best with your three books. And I always enjoy when you when you share a post and say you're crawling into the writer's cave because I just know <laughs> the creativeness is, is coming. And when you crawl out for a break, I know you need a break, so that's always when I chime in with a message. So keep keep being the amazing person that you are, and thank you for being in the change and, and offering such a great chapter full of insight and wisdom, and I look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you, Deb, and, and thank you for all you do for so many people. You You are a gift to this world. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So, folks, just a recap. We just had a wonderful interview with... Anita Brooks, and she is in the change book number four, and her chapter is called The Power of a Name Change. And I do have a huge surprise for our listeners. Tomorrow evening, we're going to do another episode of the change book series radio show, 
and I am interviewing David Hevener from Book 10. And for those of you who may not be familiar with him, he is an award-winning filmmaker and actor, and he has had films on HBO and Showtime and has been all over the world, both as a filmmaker and an actor. So I'm catching him en route back to Belize, and he's going to chime in with me tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So thanks so much for tuning in to the Changebook Radio Show, and until next time, take care.